linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And today we're going to be listening to an interview with Dr. Rachel Harris, the author of a recently published book about ayahuasca. And when I received my own copy of this book, the first thing that I noticed was the high praise that it received from Jim Fadiman, Jeremy Narby, and Diana Slattery, three people whose opinions I greatly value. I'm uh, right now about halfway through this book myself, and so I know that you're going to enjoy hearing more about it, direct from the author herself in this interview with Symposia's Lex Pelger. Hello, I'm Lex Pelger, host of Symposia, and this is a Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Today I'm coming to you from a little rest stop in the mountains of Oregon on the way to our Portland storytelling event tonight and microdosing lecture. So you'll be hearing more stories next week, but this week... I'm very pleased to present an interview with Dr. Rachel Harris, who wrote the book, Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, PTSD, and Anxiety. What I think is beautiful about this book is that Dr. Harris collected the stories of people and then put that against the science of what we already know, but it's the anecdotes that are so powerful here. And it's such a good book that Jim Fadiman himself said, Finally, 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 a book about ayahuasca that I can recommend without reservation. After listening to Dr. Rachel Harris, you'll see why. Hello, everybody out there. This is Lex Pelger, and I'm very happy to be here with Dr. Rachel Harris, who authored Listening to Ayahuasca, which is an excellent book for anybody who's seeking to use this old plant medicine for medical or spiritual uses. Dr. Harris, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. Now, tell me about your work before you got around to this book. How did this grow out of that? Well, I had I had done a, a research study on um, uh, a study of ayahuasca use in North America, and it was a combination qualitative and quantitative study, but uh, the stories, the quantitative information was overwhelming. And it led me to ask many other questions, um, mostly about how, how people were reporting amazing psychological healing. And I have both a research and a clinical background. So I wanted to know how, do, how does this healing happen? How does this work? And, and then because I've been a therapist most of my life, my, my question is always, what happens after the ceremony? How are these revelations integrated into one's life? How do they change your life? How do you behave differently? How do your relationships change? So my questions, I had, the research study had 16, it was a 16-page questionnaire with many, many, like 30 or 40 essay questions. <laughs> and Exactly. I mean, you're Make never supposed to do this. No, you're never supposed to do this in research. And people were thrilled to answer because they wanted to, they wanted to, they wanted someone to know about what they were experiencing and they wanted to talk about it. And so there was, I mean, many people said it was helpful just to complete the questionnaire and think these things through. And, um, so the, the kind, the, the kind of summary of the categories that people reported changes were they felt better about themselves. They were less harsh 
you know, that inner critic mm-hmm. that's always criticizing. Mm-hmm. It, it was less harsh, or they were, they were able to be more objective about it, not get caught in it. Their interpersonal relationships improved. They were more open. They were more available. Uh, they were more authentic in their relationships. Um, many people reported stopping addictive behaviors. I stopped. I never wanted to touch alcohol again. That, I realized alcohol was the poison. Immediately, people reported that sort of thing. And their health behaviors improved. Um, they lost weight. They ate better. They exercised more. This is not something psychotherapists are very good at getting people to do. And so that was amazing also. And so the kind of self-reports were exactly what any therapist would look for in a client to, to see improvement. Do they feel better about themselves? Are their relationships better? Are, and also mood. Is their mood better? Are they less anxious, less depressed? If they do happen to have difficult feelings, can they handle them better? And this was across the board what people were reporting. Wow, what a swath of help. That's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. And and how does it happen? I mean, there's a lot of mystery. You're probably going to ask me questions nobody has answers to. How does this happen? I, I, we really don't know exactly. Yeah. Um, well, maybe a more answerable question is, what was your reaction from uh, the journals as you tried to publish this and from fellow workers in your field who might not have been exposed to this stuff? Was there resistance? Did they find this not believable? No, it got it got accepted right away in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs. That was the right place for it. Um, but but the the funny story from the research is, you know, as I was developing the project, I was gathering my interpersonal resources and interviewing people and talking to people. And I, um, I talked with my uh, old research mentor who had been retired for like 25 years or so. Um, so and, you know, we talked about the research and he was interested as always and supportive and that sort of thing. And then I myself went into a ceremony. And in the ceremony, I hear the voice of Grandmother Ayahuasca. We can talk about what this means. I hear her voice, and she says, involve Lee, my research mentor, in the research. And I'm like an idiot, and I sort of say that. This is all not said out loud, but said in my head. I have already. I called him. I spoke to him. You know, like I'm a... a, a recalcitrant teenager, and she's very. <laughs> please don't even ask about that. She's very, she's very patient with me and very clear. And she says, "Involve him more." Now, Lee was retired, as I said, about eighty-six, and um, had had a stellar career, a national career. He's been given national awards by the American Psychological Association. And I call him up and I say, Lee. Grandmother Ayahuasca told me I should involve you more. So there's a pause on the other end of the phone. And he says, okay. (laughs) Wow. And by the time we were finished the study, I said to him, Lee, you know, there really should be a third author on this study. And he understood what I meant. Grandmother Ayahuasca gave us advice all through the study. She was really, uh, she made a difference. Let's just put it that way. She made a contribution and had it been, a, a person in this material world, we would have put her on as a third author. But we didn't do that for the 
<laughs> I don't think that would have been accepted in a journal. <laughs> yeah, we might need to wait a couple of decades for that kind of thinking. Yeah, right. It is very interesting to hear this kind of language coming from a researcher. We might hear this kind of stuff yeah. from people who have been turned on for a long time, but it I'd be curious how this goes over with some uh, more conservative colleagues. Well, you have to understand, I'm retired at this point, so I'm really free to be as wild as I want. Ah, oh, you're bulletproof. Well, so, that's wonderful. Exactly. And I think I think that was, you know, this was really a mission that I was given from Grandmother Ayahuasca, and I think only someone who's, I was very close to retirement when I started the project, retired by the time it was published, um, I think it had to be done outside the academy, Um and done privately and, you know, sort of on the down low. I, it was ayahuasca use in North America. I interviewed people in the underground. Wow. And before I ask you more about that part, I would be curious how your own journey started with Grandmother Ayahuasca. Well, you know, many people will tell a similar story and they'll say they were called in one way or another. Some people report having dreams about Grandmother Ayahuasca, or just feeling a very strong, intuitive pull. I had I had really never heard of this whole thing. And I was living in Princeton, New Jersey, and um, I it was February. I wanted a, a beach vacation. And so I signed up to go to a retreat center in Costa Rica, and like two days before I'm leaving, a representative from the retreat center calls me and says, are you going to participate in the ceremonies? And I say, what ceremonies? <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I found myself with a group of people who had chosen to be there specifically for the ceremonies. And I said, I'm in. This is wow. not what I recommend people to do, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really tell people, you know, research and check it out and check with friends and really validate what you're doing. But I honestly didn't know any of that when I kind of just really fell into this. But it, it did happen to be a retreat center where there were authentic shaman there. That's good. That's good. So it felt very natural once the journey did start. I had had experience um, in my youth in the in the 60s. So that was helpful. Okay. Is that and, I think that, and that the psychedelic experience. And I think that does um, allow people to have some navigation skills. Hmm. That makes sense. Do you have people ask you about their fears because they might never have done any kind of strong trip before? Yes. You know, I, I, in the research I did, I had 81 subjects in the study, but I, in, I've interviewed 50 to a hundred people. And I mean, wow. I've been interviewing people for the last decade and, and many people I've been following for five to eight years. I mean, this is, you know, you can't follow 50 people for eight years, but I've been following a lot of people. I just sent, um, a book is a gift to a young man. I, I had, he, he had filled out the questionnaire. I collected his data. Five years later, I called him up. I, I mean, I emailed him and asked if I could call him. And five years later, I interviewed him. You know, how, has, how have things changed? How do you look at it now? Um, so this has been going on for a long time. So I've heard lots of different stories and, and I think of people don't have psychedelic experience. This is a very strong medicine. And, um, you know, it's a big leap. Yeah, it, it surely is. What What's your, your baseline recommendations for people when they come to you curious about 
starting this, both the, the, the risks and the ways to approach this medicine? Well, I'm extremely cautious. That's good. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, I'm not referring people to um, tours or shamans. I'm, there's no referral service here. I just really am extremely cautious because, first of all, we really never know what we're drinking. How do we really vet a shaman? How do we know who we're with or what the situation is really going to be like? And um, there, there are many risks, So, and it's not regulated at all. So it's, it's, it's a very difficult process. And, and, and to tell you the truth, even people who have done everything I've said, one, one woman I've been following, and she's very sophisticated and experienced, and she took a referral from very experienced people, and it turned out not to be a good referral. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know what to say about except to be very, very cautious. That makes sense. How did that go for you then, finding research subjects about an underground activity here in the United States and North America? It was completely word of mouth. Wow. Yeah. What were the different ranges of ceremonies you saw going on in the underground up here? Well... <laughs> or heard about, I should say. Yeah, it... Yeah, thank you. It it really covers the waterfront. I mean, the New Yorker magazine had it. I don't know if you saw that article of I think ayahuasca is the new kale or something like that. Yes. And, yes. and the writer went to she didn't she didn't really check out where she was going well enough. So she went to some pseudo ceremony in Brooklyn next to a bar where they heard noise and music from the bar all through the night. And it was run by a yogi shaman person i have no idea and uh that that was not the optimum ceremonial experience let's just put it that way so Brooklyn's because tough. there are <laughs> brooklyn is tough well i'm not going to go there but there are authentic ceremonies being done but you really have to wait and and get the right connections but because this is all underground it's very difficult yeah, it's true. It's it's really interesting to hear word around the New York scene because there's such different ways it's being done and some people are so good at it and others, they're not terrible and their medicine's good. So a lot of healing gets done, but then for the hard cases and for the follow-up integration, it's where people seem to feel an, a lack and a need. And that's why I like so much about your book. It's a focus not on the snakes and the visions, but exactly on the integration afterwards. How did you that's come around exactly to that way of thinking about it? Well, that's a standard therapy question. Mm. I mean, it's really a traditional therapy question. If somebody has an insight in a therapy session, how, how does it then um, stabilize in them and and generalize into their life. And so the same therapeutic question can be asked about an ayahuasca experience. And it was it was part of the challenge of the psychedelic use in the 60s. And there were lots of wonderful quotes. I think, you know, one of them was a spiritual experience does not make a spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And those of us who saw what happened in the 60s, um, you know, we saw that acted out live, and it was pretty devastating. We really had hopes that psychedelics would make a difference in the culture, and the problem was they made a difference in the wrong direction. So the the question is, you know, who are you as a person 
given your psychedelic experience. Yes. As, as my buddy around here, the anarchist Dimitri Mugianis always says, if you're a sociopath, then psychedelics yeah. are going to make you a much better sociopath. Well, that's sort of a terrifying um, but true quote. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm, I'm too liable to focus on the dark side just because I'm a professional devil's advocate. Um, <laughs> that's fine. I'll go there. Yeah. But actually, at first, I'd be curious to hear, I mean, what were the stories of healing that were really striking? After all your years of helping people with talk and, and seeing the pharmaceuticals work, what kind of stories really surprised you about what ayahuasca could do in the short term or working with her for a while? I, you know, it, people, they're, it, I'm, I'm stuttering because this is difficult to talk about. I think what's most dramatic and amazing are the, um, what I call a miracle cure. And I don't know if you read, <clears throat> excuse me, in the intro to the book, I quote Kira Salak. She wrote, oh, what it's uh, to Helen back, a, a, an article about a trip to an ayahuasca ceremony in Peru that was published in National Geographic Adventure. Mm-hmm. It's a great story. And, and, and she basically says, I've, I've suffered with very dark depression all my life, and it's, it's lifted completely. And then she has a 10-year follow-up on her website that says, I am still no longer depressed. Wow. So that, that, you know, we have no way to understand that. It's way beyond what psychotherapy does. And um, it's, it's an incredible story. And I, I had, <coughs> excuse me, I had um, someone I had seen in psychotherapy who basically just stopped drinking right away, and he was he was well on his way to being in in terrible trouble as an alcoholic. He just stopped completely, and you know I've I've tracked him for a decade now. He's not drinking. He doesn't have an alcohol problem, and that was really. You know, coming out of the ceremony, I realized alcohol is a poison. I'm not touching it again. Wow. So, you know, these, I don't know how else to call them except to say this is kind of a miracle cure. And we don't really have a way of understanding it. They don't even, the people who report this, some of them continue to drink ayahuasca for other reasons, but others don't. That You know, that's it. Wow. They just, they just know. And some of the stories in here really are, can blow you away for PTSD, for anxiety, depression, addiction. You've just collected so many different tales where it's a lot of hope for something that we're having so much struggle with in this culture. It's a lot of hope. And what I found was people people wanted to talk to me. It was not, you know, I've, I've done a lot of data collection in my time, and it's usually like pulling teeth. People really wanted to talk to me, and they would they would fill out this um, extensive questionnaire and then write me a personal letter and send me their email and their telephone number, call me anytime. And I did call people. I, you know, I did call people. They really wanted to talk. And what, what many of these interviews turned out to be, they were practically therapy sessions. Hmm. People, you know, were sharing their experiences and how it's worked for them. But I, I guess, you know, I can't stop myself. They were practically like therapy sessions, but they were very revealing. Wow. And people had a need to integrate more. And that's sort of, that's sort of what they were looking. So one woman, <clears throat> a young woman, talked about how she encountered um, the feminine archetype in Grandmother Ayahuasca and what a difference this made. 
So, you know, how can I not ask the following question? How's your relationship with your mother? <laughs> I couldn't stop myself. I'm sorry. And she burst out in tears. Oh. So that's what the interviews were like. And and had she not talked to me, a therapist, she would have continued to experience that ceremony as an encounter with a feminine archetype and never make the connection to her relationship to her mother. And that's where the clinical work was that's she she needed to do some work on her mother that makes sense and so if someone you know some people will understand that and make that leap but many people will miss it and then that's a golden opportunity that's lost yeah yeah now how how would you set up the, the world? How would you set up this country if there was going to be an integrated practice here with the kind of follow-up you would like to see? Well, here's the, the first line, I would say, is I'm, I'm really encouraging people to make the most of those golden hours and days and weeks after really any psychedelic experience and work with a therapist. So have the opportunity to have a, an ongoing relationship with a therapist who is experienced in these realms and knows how to work with these experiences. So that would be my first wish. This is like the three wishes from a genie. Another way to do it would be um, there could be more needs to be done just in terms of integration after the ceremony, not just a sharing or talking stick circle, but um really an opportunity to work on things. But that implies there's a therapist there to manage that, and it's a relatively small group. So like 8 to 12, which is the normal size of a therapy group. That's not the way ceremonies are done. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, um, and even a group is not is not the same intensity as individual therapy. So, you know, you're asking a therapist, what do I recommend? And a therapist will answer therapy. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> so the ideal would be an ongoing therapeutic relationship where, you know, there's a process. If, if someone doesn't experience a miracle cure, then they're working with the medicine in an ongoing way. And wouldn't it be wonderful for them to be in an ongoing relationship with a therapist who can follow their process and work with them? So for this woman I interviewed, which was a one-shot interview, if I were her therapist and following her, you know, maybe a few weeks later after another ceremony or after she's um, had a heart-to-heart -heart with her mother or whatever, you know, I could say, how's it going with your mom? So that there's continuity, that there's a process here of unfolding and working things through. Yeah, it is a it is a big lack. And I really liked the one part you said about a native tribe that after someone went on a vision quest, they were treated for the next couple of days as a little bit in the other world and given a chance to reflect and just act differently because they had just been through something so transformative and they weren't expected to be back at work two well, days later punching the clock. Yes, that's a culture that supports journeys into altered states. And we don't exactly do that in our culture. No. So I, I was consulted by a psychiatrist who was going to go to his first ceremony, and he asked me for advice, and we covered a lot of things. And 
one of the things I said was don't don't go back in the office Monday morning. Don't schedule, you know, six patients or what, however many he sees. Did he take my advice? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, after the ceremony, we are at our most flexible. I mean, neurologically, there's evidence for this from functional MRIs. Th- you know, things, r- there's rewiring happening. And, and the words that get used in the underground are recalibration, reset, reorganization. And so this psychiatrist walked back into a situation Monday morning where he needed to be his old self. Hmm. So he lost, you know, the best opportunity. I'm I'm really most interested in what happens after the ceremony. And that was the therapeutic opportunity that was lost. And the irony is that he himself was a therapist. Uh, plumber's toilet's always broken, yeah, huh? Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> oh, man. Yes. Um, and now, did you get to, to hear much about the, the, the native churches here in the States that have the legal right to use ayahuasca and how they set up their ceremonies? Yeah, I've done a bunch of interviews, and I've, I've had some experiences in those situations as well. They're quite different from the indigenous ceremonies. How so? Um, and, well... Y- y- they're a church, for one thing. So these are the syncretic churches, and um, they're Christian. And uh, they have a different uh, cosmology and belief system, and, um, and the medicine is, is different. It's highly refined. And they have the best system for producing consistent, um, what, I shouldn't call it medicine, I should call it a sacrament. They have the best system for producing um, a, a purified sacrament, and they use it as part of in a religious context. And um, the UDV is very clear: this is not for therapeutic reasons, medical or psychological. It's a sacrament; it's religious, and um, that it's because they are a church, and, and it's true, and it also protects their right to use it in the Religious Freedom Act. And and there are different, you know, churches are always changing. Nothing is static in this world. And there's more and more, um, it, it, you know, some of the people leading some of the church um, structures are more open to therapy. This is in the Santo Daime Church. Some are more open to transformation than others. I, I did have an interview from one person from, a very experienced person in a daimi church, and she came to me with experience that she was very upset about. I don't want to say exactly what it was, but she was extremely upset, and she hardly knew me, and she wanted to talk to me. And I sort of naively said to her, isn't there somebody in the church you can talk to about this? And I was naive because the answer was no. And so that was that one one church, the way it was set up. There was no one she could talk to. Mm. That, so it, it depends on the church. Part. Yeah, yeah. Again, I guess just find the place that feels right to you, which is can be very hard, very and difficult. difficult. Yes, and and if there's if there's if if a person can't find therapeutic support in the church, because that's true of a lot of church organizations, whether they're involved with with this sacrament or not. I mean, even you know all the religious de- denominations, you don't always find someone who would be 
help a helpful counselor, then then you do need to take you do need to talk to a therapist about something that's that upsetting. Um, and so she found me, but it she really needed a therapist to talk to to really work through what her upsetting experience was indicating. Yeah, how how do you recommend uh, things for people who have to deal with the shadow side, who are going into this expecting a really beautiful experience, and then they see hell and the Holocaust and the dark side of themselves and come out of it and don't know what to do? Right. That's, that's, that's a process. There is no, oh, do one, two, three. And, you know, when people talk about integration, that, that's a, that's a, and, and integration is often, when people talk about integration, they often talk about take it easy for the next couple of days, do yoga, meditate, write in your journal, you know, watch your dreams, eat healthy, continue on the diet. Um, that's not therapy. And uh, it's all good advice and it's not therapy. So if someone is really, um, as you might say, blown away by an experience of, of the shadow, the archetype shadow, their own personal shadow, that's a process about how to how to move through a, a new relationship to that part of themselves. And that, you know, that's, I mean, from a Jungian point of view, and I'm not a Jungian therapist, but, you know, this material sent me into a lot of Jungian writing. Um, that's a Jungian process that goes on for, for quite a while in analysis. So there is no easy answer, but... But the the most superficial answer is this is very, very rich therapeutic territory and it's really worth exploring and taking your time and entering into a, a process working with this material. That's a beautiful description. And and a lot more grounded than you often hear. I mean we can't promise the moon, but if you want to put the time in and do the work, she'll help you. Well, you know, I, I came out of Esalen Institute in the late 60s. I don't know if you know Esalen. Sure. Yeah, okay. So I went right from, as we have said, we, we have the same alma mater. I went from Boston University. I graduated and went right into the Esalen Residential Program. Wow. Which back then was lasted for six months, and then I stayed on the staff for a couple of years. And then in the 90s, I went back and led workshops there for about a decade. So – I had this background in body work and meditation and in watching people work on themselves. And, and, and that was before I went to graduate school. So then, you know, I had training and supervision in psychotherapy and, and then I've been sitting and listening to people for 35 years. So I have, <laughs> I have great respect for process and how long it takes and what work looks like. And, and my, because I had that Esalen background, I tended to attract in my private practice people who who were you would say they're well functioning, but they wanted to um, work on on unresolved issues or relationship problems um, so that their life could go better. And they were interested in the general kind of psycho spiritual development. And um, you know, I really have a great appreciation for what I call the basics. We have to work on our issues from our family of origin hmm. and and then and the generations you know in our family, the traditions in our family and, and the patterns in our family that are transgenerational 
And this is, this is the, this is what psychotherapy work looks like. And ayahuasca can help us immensely. I mean, I think it's a rocket boost to psychotherapy, <laughs> but, um, you know, the old spiritual bypass, that's, that's really no way to go. It's not helpful. Yeah. Can you define spiritual bypass for people and what you, how you see it manifest? <clears throat> well, the young woman who had, she was really enamored with her encounter with a female archetype and um but that's a if she doesn't do the work on her relationship with her mother that's a spiritual bypass she's shifted levels it's really old-fashioned psychological work that needs to be done on her family of origin and yet she's moved to an archetype a feminine archetype instead of working on the mother in her life and her psyche so that's the, that's an example of a spiritual bypass. But the definition is that there's a shift in levels, and it's actually a defense mechanism to avoid the the psychological work by shifting into a, you know, a, a spiritual bypass can happen in a lot of different religious traditions. I love everybody. I'm never angry. I forgive everyone. <laughs> well, you know, some of those people are pretty angry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I had a, an old wise woman once told me to to know what someone isn't, listen to what they say out loud about themselves. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I know. Well, since she said it, I've noticed it to be too true. It's not even pleasant. <laughs> and this uh, and this is difficult work. It's really. I mean, I understand why people don't want to do it. It's difficult work, but it's been part of my whole life and my commitment in my own life, and and so I had this foundation. Um, even before I moved into ayahuasca experiences and research. That makes sense. You you can see that passion uh, and that groundedness throughout the whole work. It's really great that way. And I, it's, it's interesting how much we in the West like to focus on the mind and relationships and the healing that can be done there. And it's why I really like your chapter on the indigenous use and talking about the, the subtle perceptual trainings that, uh, might have been called magic uh, another time in spirit worlds and reach out these things that it's very hard for the Western mind to even grasp exist. But once you start getting the medicine, there's this stuff that's very unexplainable. What yes. was it like to try to explore that stuff and hear about it from people and then try to explain it to others who might be uh, turned off but, by that idea? You know, you know, the, the, the traditional way of developing a research questionnaire is you 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 begin to interview people who know the territory. So I, the first person I interviewed, started to talk to me about spirits, and I had had a couple of years experience, but I I really I mean I was basically blown away by this interview. I didn't know if the guy was crazy. <laughs> I, I really I really didn't. I mean, but. You know, I interviewed him enough to know, no, this is a high-functioning guy who changed his life after a couple of ceremonies and feels that he has spirit, healing spirits who help him in everything he does. And so, you know, I, I listened. I didn't know what to do with it, but I listened. And I kept interviewing people, and I found a very intuitive female shaman who basically said to me, you have to ask people about their relationship to the spirit of ayahuasca. And I just did it. I just put it in the questionnaire. 
How do you communicate with her? You know, what does what what does the relationship look like? Those kinds of questions. And and what blew me away was seventy five percent of eighty one people said they wrote, "I have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. She comes to me in dreams. I communicate with her intuitively." She's a constant source of love and support in my life. She gives me guidance. I turn to her. I don't know how to understand this. <laughs> and I just, I just, I mean, the funny thing is I just wrote up um, a, a description of a talk I'm going to give at MAPS. I'm one of the presenters in the plant medicine track. And I talked about this data point um because it is mind boggling and i used the phrase grandmother ayahuasca instead of spirit of ayahuasca and um i was asked to take it out of the uh, description of my talk <laughs> oh man <laughs> which of course i did but that's that's you know we are a western culture and so that's the situation but this is uh, this is an amazing um phenomenon that how can we understand it so i went to people who I thought would know about this. And um, one was Houston Smith. I don't know if you know that name. Mm-hmm. We'll be featuring a, a talk about his legacy on our symposia stage at the MAPS conference. Right. So this is this is a family friend of mine. And so I was having wow. breakfast with Houston, and I asked him. <laughs> and he said, we don't know. So I okay, well, and I asked Robert Foreman. You probably don't know him because he's a religion philosophy professor, but he's written – kind of, you know, major philosophy books about mystical experience. So I asked, again, breakfast. I guess I eat a lot at breakfast. A a different breakfast on the other coast. Um, You know, this is what I found. Who's this grandmother ayahuasca? Who's this spirit? He gave me the exact same answer. We don't know. And that, that made me feel better because I didn't know. So if these experts don't know, I, you know, we, we live with the mystery. And I, I think we have to be awed by the mystery and respect the mystery. And therapeutically, I can say, people are reporting that their relationship with Grandmother Ayahuasca is enormously therapeutic. Wow. Wow. To, and are these often the kind of people that you wouldn't suspect of having these kind of mystical leanings and experiences and shamanic processes? Well, just by the sheer percentage of them, it has to include those people, 75%. That's, yeah. Yeah. It's very surprising that and is. inexplicable. And then I also hear a voice. So how do I explain that? I, you know, I was raised to be an agnostic. How do I explain it? I don't know. Yeah. As, as many people as are on earth, there should be facets of God to talk to them. Well, I guess there are. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not saying Grandmother Ayahuasca is a, is a God. I'm not, I can't go that far. But, um, you know, uh, it's very fascinating to hear a voice that is not my own inner voice, which I know pretty well. And, uh, and I'm not, and I don't happen to be schizophrenic. So, I don't know how to explain this voice, but I can tell you she gave me concrete advice on data interpretation, on how we analyze the data, <laughs> which I then brought back to my co-author, Lee, who I was, um, he's more expert on the, the statistical analysis than I am. 
even though we both understood it, and we talked about it and we molded over, and it made a difference in how we interpreted the findings. And that really was the major contribution that would have rightfully led Grandmother Ayahuasca to be the third author. I mean, when she influenced how we interpreted data, that's pretty big. <laughs> I know. Wow. I know. Wow. Yeah. This is wonderful stuff. Thank you so much for sharing. It, it's one to to go this deep and talk to so many people. It seems like the most important data. As as much as I respect the peer reviewed research process with the neurochemistry and all the great work being done at these research institutions. Yes, that's all very like exciting. It has to be done, but our best data is ourselves. We t dosing mice doesn't matter nearly as much as getting a story from a naive user who saw something they never expected to see. In well, the, in, the information <clears throat> is coming from the ground up, which is the same process with marijuana, and that's led to a change in, in laws. I mean, so, so many people were saying, this, this marijuana is helping my, my, my young child not have um, epileptic seizures. I mean, how can, how can we ignore that? Pretty easily. Well, <laughs> that data has been out there since the 50s, and the, they, well, they checked it, some studies on it. It's oh, amazing dear. what we can ignore. Oh, it's, a, it's been a long time coming. But there is, there is movement, and <clears throat> I'm hopeful for the next few decades. That, that's great to hear. Now, And speaking of other medicines, what did people say about mixing different plant medicines and sacraments and things like that in their ceremonies? I, I don't know about mixing it in the ceremony itself. Okay. I mean, you know, when I say we don't know what is in the brew, we don't know if there's detura mixed into the brew. <clears throat> and that's, <clears throat> that's very problematic. Yes. That's a very difficult medicine, and it's led to um, abuse in, in the Amazon because people <clears throat> sort of lose consciousness and have trouble regaining clarity. So it's sort of like a date rape drug. It's been used in that sort of way. So that's very difficult. And traditionally, I, I don't know, I, I work with someone um, who's very, very traditional. And so it's the medicine is a mix of the traditional two plants. So there are many iterations beginning to happen. And I, I don't know a lot about them. What I do want to relate is the, the the data that I collected was some people stopped using marijuana and other psychedelics and other people um, felt that marijuana was an ally to ayahuasca. So the reports went in both directions. But I do want to caution from my own experience um, after a ceremony, like almost a week later, like four days later, to be exact, if I'm remembering correctly, I took one toke of marijuana and the whole ceremony came back. So much so that I couldn't drive my own car home. I had friends who wow. had to drive me home. So <clears throat> things happen that we can't predict and maybe don't understand. And um, I, I just want to say, you know, again, be careful and unexpected things can happen. So there's one um, Western shaman described to me, there's ceremonial time, the time before and after the ceremony. That's 
really ripe with magic, shall we say. And this is when unexpected things can happen, and that was one for me. And it, 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 uh, I wasn't prepared for it. And, and frankly, it wasn't all that helpful or fun either. And it went on for hours. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's not a good time drug, is it? Always. No, um, that, that was an unusual situation. So it was not the helpful ceremonial experience. Mm. And it caught me by surprise. Yeah, it seems like it happens a lot. You go in expecting one thing and maybe some confidence that this time you're going to get this from her, and that's one of the best ways to get your butt handed to you. Can happen. <laughs> but that this happened four, day, four full days after a ceremony is what shocked me. Wow. With wow. one small hit on a, on a pipe, I think, or something. And, and that's one question I'd love to hear, and it is the 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 most important harm reduction advice you like to offer to people who are considering this medicine? Well, I think, you know, I, uh, there's lots of advice about harm reduction and, and I don't really cover that in my book. That's not the, the purpose of my book, but besides saying, be careful, be careful, be careful. What I want to emphasize is that, um, the, the essence of harm reduction is never to leave anyone alone. Right. It's I mean, that's that's what happens in, in the harm reduction tents at the at the raves and the music festivals. I will stay with you until you're you feel completely finished till you feel safe again so that somebody always has somebody with them. And that's the essence of um, what they do in the research studies where they have two therapists in the room, a male and a female sitting with the person who's who's taking the psychedelic um, drug in, in a research setting. So the essence of harm reduction is some a safe person for support. And what happens often after ceremonies is people go home alone. And I interviewed one guy who, you know, he had carpooled with people. They dropped him off. He went in his apartment and he called a taxi to take him to the emergency room. He was having a panic attack. And we we somehow have to <clears throat> be willing to build this into the structure of ceremonies <clears throat> that people are not left alone. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's such tricky stuff because so much of what we're trying to do here in North America is craft our own rituals, learn from the Amazon, but also adapt this medicine to this very heady Western mindset, and it can it can cause difficulties. Well, I, I think we have to really consider this as as the medicine does become integrated into Western culture. We we have to think seriously about how do we take care of each other, and I you know I I, I don't know how good we are at this, but that's the question. That's the challenge. How do we care for each other? Then mm. this is a subculture because the general culture is not doing it all that well. And I, you know, I always have hope that this, this counterculture, this underground, you know, people who are working in spiritual realms that we will care for each other. Mm, that's beautiful. In fact, it, it prompts me to, I just want to read the very last lines of your mm -hmm. book because they're yeah. so good before you I, actually before read I let the whole go. book. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, yeah, it's a great, yeah, it's a great book. I'm, I'm very you. impressed with it, and I think it's a great manual for anybody who wants to consider this this work. And when you say at the end, I see her in multiple shades of green alive in the forest. She has given me a new way of perceiving reality as vibration, a new way of being in the world, and the world being in me. As Robinson Jeffers wrote, I have fallen in love outward, and I am grateful. It's really beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, so uh, is there anything you'd like to say about upcoming stuff before we let you go? Well, you know, I'm going to be in Berkeley tonight. I don't, you know, that's already too late, I'm sure, for this to go out. But I'll be speaking. I'm a speaker at the MAPS conference in April in uh, Oakland. It's Psychedelic Science 2017. That sounds great. We'll be there too with our stage, and it'll be great to meet you in person there. I look forward yes, to absolutely. I will come find you. That sounds great. Hopefully, you get a, a, one of your personal stories for our storytelling stage there. I'd love to. That would be fun. I'm sure, that would be a great one. It would be fun. Well, Dr. Harris, thank you so much for your work, talking to all these people, and then passing it on to the rest of us. It's it's beautiful and much appreciated. Thank you so much, Lex. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. To say thank you, we have perks like hemp t-shirts, blotter art, tickets to our events, Palo Santo, and one of the new chapters from Anandamide, or The Cannabinoid, my graphic novel series about cannabis based on Moby Dick. A special thanks to Matt Payne, who engineered the sound, Joey Whip and California Smile, who made the music, and to Brian Norman, who produced the show.